Welcome to our Ephesians class. We've combined classes and over the next is it 14 weeks, I think including an introduction and kind of wrap-up conversation, we're going to be walking through uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So I, I'm excited about this. The, the, the basic premises of our Sunday school classes is typically we have two classes going. One, I, I just to share my heart, I kind of hate speaking in these terms, but you'll understand what I'm saying. One class, usually a little more focus on theology, and one class more practical. I, I, I hate using those terms. I cringe using those terms. And part of the reason is, as we look at a letter uh, like Ephesians, we're going to see how the theology that Paul uh, opens his letter up in the first few chapters flows directly into the practice of the last few chapters. And it, it, his, his theology informs his practice. And, and I think that's just something that's very important for us to remember even when we do have a more practical class like this last time uh, on the family, that we're constantly, especially as the church, constantly tying that back to Scripture, that we, we derive our practice from what we know to be true uh, from the Word of God. So we're going to be diving into that over the next uh, handful of weeks, more than a handful of weeks, going all the way through the summer and enjoying uh, kind of digging into uh, this this rich uh, letter uh, of Ephesians, uh, Damien, you still do you still have it memorized? Is it still up here? Uh, just the first two chapters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just the first two. You you, you had you had the whole. No, no. Oh no. Okay, you had the first. I had only. Okay. For some reason, I could never get chapter three stuck. <laughs> it just wouldn't stick. Okay. Well, it's always fun. You can. Yeah. Not going to have Damien do it now, but it's always fun to hear Damien quote the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Well, let me pray, and we will dive in and get started. Father, I praise you for this day. And we praise you for uh, the rain, just water, uh, water the ground, just the, the greenness of Middle Tennessee. We praise you for that. But Father, I praise you for this day that we that you have given us to gather together as your saints to worship you. I pray that you would just strengthen us through uh, your word as we study it here in Sunday school. And then as we hear uh, Ryan preach to us your word in the main service, just strengthen us through it, build us up, uh, unite us. Father, help us to uh, realize the that union that we do have with uh, Christ and with one another. Help us to maintain that unity uh, through um, the means that you have given us to do so. Just help our uh, eyes to be opened, our ears to be open to hear, uh, to see you, to receive you. Uh, just strengthen us through these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I if if uh, you've been in any of my classes over the last um, couple months, you notice I, I like to start kind of with a little bit of a devotional. Um, I think it's it's a practice that I uh, have observed in my seminary classes. Pretty much every uh, seminary class I take, are my professors who are pastors open with a bit of a devotional. And you know, there's there's certain um, whether it's a language, Greek or Hebrew, or we're actually digging into sections of the Word of God. It's just a good good way to set our hearts to realize 
uh, what we are studying, that there, there is more of more than just a um, more than just an intellectual exercise happening when we study the Word of God, but a, a real uh, attitude of worship, a, a heart that is bent toward wanting to know the things of God. So for that, and this is going to tie in directly with uh, my uh, introduction to Ephesians today, which I'm not, I, I don't really get to talk about any of the actual text of Ephesians today, since I got to save that for the rest of the teachers. But we're going to do a lot of, we're going to look at a lot of various passages that set up the book of Ephesians. But I want to start in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. You can turn you there if you want. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments. I just want to read this and just talk about it for a moment. Exodus 20, I'm going to start with verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the, and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor, uh, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So we're familiar with the Ten Commandments. But I skipped a very, very important part about the Ten Commandments. And that is how the Ten Commandments begins. Verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Redemption always precedes obedience. This is something that is a pattern that repeats throughout Scripture over and over and over and over again. Even with the Ten Commandments, as God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel on Sinai, He begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that everything else that flows from there, they're supposed to understand they belong to him. He has brought them out. He has rescued them. He has given them the salvation and brought them out of of their slavery. And now he gives them the law. So it's very important for us to to remember this. That redemption precedes obedience. And this is why if you see the the posters for this class, the uh, email I sent out a few weeks ago, it includes that, it's kind of focused on this John Owen quote. 
where he says, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. You could take the Ten Commandments as the church has done through the years and strive, oh, we're going to, just as the children of Israel said, all this we will do. We fail and fail and fail. That the law is good and holy and right and true. We're going to fail it, fail it. It's constantly pointing us back to our sin and misery, to our need for redemption, our need for a savior. And we have to view them in view uh, in the remembrance that God has already rescued us. As uh, believers, we can think of the great cry that Paul has uh, to the church in Colossae saying, you have been, uh, I, yeah, I've transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of my son, of my beloved son. So this is the same thing for us. Um, just a, a, a very weak illustration, uh, but it's uh, an illustration nonetheless of, of this. This last week, Courtney and I and boys are running errands. And we pull, the, the boys are getting a little anxious just to be home. And we pull up to the driveway and we realize, hey, we ha- we've got a couple more errands that we need to do. Reese, my nine-year-old, is like, oh, can't I just stay home? <laughs> we don't let him stay home a lot by himself, but we weren't going to be very, gone very long. It's like, you know what? Sure. We're going to let you stay home. You know how to get a hold of us, Right. Uh, kind of go through all the, the little quick checklist. Don't answer the door to anyone. You know, make sure you take the dog out back. You can stay out back and play with her, whatever it might be. Then, of course, you have Ellis. And I trust Reese for long enough at the house, but I don't trust Reese and Ellis <laughs> long enough at the house. Not yet. So Ellis, as we drive off, is extremely disappointed that he didn't get to stay home like his brother. He didn't get to enjoy those things. So we tell him, well, Ellis, I know Reese, as he's older, gets to do something a little special. And you don't get to do that yet because you're younger. But guess what? We're still going to do something special. So let's, let's stop and get a treat. When we're done with our errands, we'll get a treat for you. It's like, we can go to McDonald's and get an ice cream? Like, sure, we can go to McDonald's and get an ice cream. But just knowing that, I'm your son. You're going to do something special for me this privilege that even though I have to stay with my parents and my brother gets to stay home, you guys are going to do something special for me. And the rest of our errands, I didn't, there wasn't a single complaint from him. He, he was happy to know I have this ice cream that I'm looking forward to, that I, that I get to uh, enjoy uh, this special privilege that when I get home, I'm going to keep quiet from my older brother. Yes, you got to stay. I don't know. If, I think you actually did. Did he, did he tell Reese? No. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> he did a great job. So Reese got to do something special, and Ellis kept it hush-hush that he got to have an ice cream uh, with, his, with his parents. So, so <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but, but so often, this is, this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. Yeah, I think of uh, 1 Peter and just how Peter opens his letter just reminding us um, of what lies ahead for us. First Peter 1, 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the constant drumbeat of scripture. It's not do this, do X, Y, and Z, and then you have this wonderful thing that is lying ahead for you. No, it's, it's set up saying there is an inheritance. You have been brought into the household of faith. Jesus has gone and prepared a place for you. This, this is what is all, all that is yours. Now, go obey. And as, as Peter continues, he very much like Paul in, the, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, walks through how does the Christian life look like on the ground? How do we live out the reality that we are no longer citizens of the domain of darkness, but we are citizens of God's kingdom? That's how it works out. Even thinking of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is well known for kind of being broken down into three main sections, um, guilt, grace, and gratitude. So it starts off with the guilt to let us know about our sin and misery. Shows us the grace that rescues us from that sin and misery. Uh, sin and, misery. and then tells us the gratitude that we then live out uh, from that grace. But even in the Heidelberg Catechism, they can't help but start with their very first question by letting you know you are good with God. And it's, it's the, uh, I'll just read it because it's such a rich, comforting uh, text. This one's a little old English, so bear with me. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So this beautiful uh, picture that um, we understand through scripture that we put in our confessions and our catechisms of this, that redemption that is ours, redemption precedes obedience. With that understood, let's, let's move into some of the kind of more technical pieces of Ephesians as, we, as I set up Paul's letter to this church, uh, and we can dig in next week. So Ephesians, like I said, I'm not going to read really anything out of it other than the very first verse, I think. So kind of typical things you might ask yourself as you're looking at a, a book, as you kind of maybe even crack open a study Bible, author, date, or the recipients, and those sort of things. So the author, well, it starts off, Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So we have right there 
who wrote it. Now, obviously, just like everything else in Scripture, there are people out there who say, oh, no, 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 no. Paul didn't write this. This doesn't sound like Paul's writing. And those arguments are always a little silly to me. First off, you just look at modern day authors and there's certain authors that kind of live live in their genre and yeah, they're, oh yeah, it's obvious. But there's some authors who write different styles who, um, or even you think of uh, uh, directors of movies. Like I've done this, I wanna do this now and I'm gonna, and if we kind of took that criticism uh, that uh, kind of more liberal theologians would have of scripture, we'd say, well, there's no way that Steven Spielberg directed that movie because that is so different. Uh, you know, E.T., e. right, is Spielberg. Yep. And, and um, what's the uh, Schindler's List? Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. E.T. and Schindler's List. <laughs> there's no way. That, who, that the person who directed Schindler's List could have directed E.T. That's impossible. They're t- totally different. It's, ridic- it's really an absurd argument. Um, but there are people nonetheless who say uh, that it wasn't Paul, that it was someone who just used Paul's name for credibility. Uh, and there, there's some who put that forward as if that would be a fine thing uh, even though in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul's very clear about uh, being uh, people who speak the truth. Uh, that's, that's just an interesting kind of side note. But we hold, as the churches throughout uh, history have held, that this is a letter uh, from Paul. So we have to ask ourselves first then, who is Paul? And I know a lot of us are probably very familiar with Paul. But I think it's a good exercise, nonetheless, to think through uh, who Paul is. For the sake of time, we're kind of—I uh, won't read all these passages. But where do where do we first see Paul on the pages of Scripture? And his name is Saul, is given as Saul at the time. Persecuting the church, the stoning of Stephen, and it says, uh, you know, they go through this whole thing. Stephen's great sermon before he's being stoned. I can't imagine giving a a sermon like like uh, Stephen did, knowing that I'm about to have be stoned to death. Uh, but he he gives his sermon, and, and it, before he's stoned, it says that they that those who were persecuting Stephen, who were going to stone Stephen, laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that starts off then chapter 8, which gives us some color on about who this Saul character is as he goes on and begins to persecute the church with a religious zeal. It is, it is not a, um, the zeal that he has is not a political zeal. It is a religious zeal based on the Old Testament scriptures that he says this is a blasphemous religion that I'm going to help snuff out. So Saul is a persecutor of the church. We can read a little bit of his um, autobiography from Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He gives his uh, resume a bit here. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I know my lineage. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This doesn't mean that Paul said I was sinless, just blameless. Like there's, hey, is, any, is there anyone here who could bring a charge against Saul? Crickets. <laughs> I can't bring a charge against Saul. Saul, as to the law, was a blameless man. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. That the, I, I, if there was an icon of what a Pharisee should be, Paul, Saul was that person. He was the picture of what a Pharisee should be. So much so that his zeal led him uh, to persecute the church. Then, of course, we, we know that Christ had different plans for Saul. And as, as Saul is on his way uh, to persecute the church, to haul more Christians off in, and throw them into prison, he's knocked off his horse bright light shines down and Christ uh, Christ calls to him and commissions him probably should read that yeah right kicking against the goats um, Acts 9 Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and Paul said Saul said who are you Lord and he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then following, following on, we have uh, what, what Christ, what God tells Ananias, who Saul is supposed to meet in Damascus. Ananias' first reaction, say, hey, I'm going to send you to Saul. He needs you right now. I was like, um, wait, this is the Saul that is going around and persecuting the church. I've heard about this guy. This doesn't sound like the, the kind of house I want to walk into. And Christ says, no. He says, um, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Then uh, Ananias goes, heals Saul of his, of his blindness. Uh, next thing we know in Scripture, we see Saul uh, proclaiming Christ. Uh, it's verse 22 of chapter 9. It says, Paul, uh, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And what I love as you read through Acts, those little lines like proving uh, proving that Jesus was the Christ, uh, proving from Scripture. It's important for us to realize that the way they're proving at that point Jesus is the Christ is by looking at the Old Testament Scriptures. They didn't have any of the New Testament Scriptures at that point. They're looking to the Old Testament Scriptures and like, this is, this is Saul, who's a student of the Word. Christ reveals himself to him, commissions him as an apostle, and now all of a sudden, he understands what the Old Testament scriptures that he had been studying since his childhood actually mean. They are indeed pointing to Jesus Christ. So we see this uh, with Paul. We understand, um, I, to finish his 
little resume in Philippians, continuing on from uh, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this is, this is Paul living very much like we have already talked about, living redemption forward, living in the light of, of what Christ has done for him. Back to Ephesians, as far as the, the date that Paul uh, wrote. It's believed that Paul wrote this between uh, AD 60 and AD 62. He wrote it from prison. This is one of his prison epistles, and tradition holds that it's very likely uh, the, his imprisonment in Rome. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus, I think it's some maybe seven years after uh, he, he was last there, five to seven years. Some of the things that were happening during this time in history Nero was the Roman emperor. Uh, again, I said he wrote this between AD 60 and AD 62. In AD 64, Rome would burn. I know the story behind that. Uh, during the same time, Paul likely wrote uh, his letter to the church uh, in Colossae. Uh, there's very similar themes. Some people, again... This is where you, the textual critics would say, oh, there's too many uh, similarities between Ephesians and, and, and Colossians. Someone's copied Colossians and just kind of put it in their own words and ascribed Paul's name to Ephesians. Like, well, it, I don't know if you've ever done it. If you're writing multiple letters about the same topic to multiple people, a lot of times I repeat the same sentences, <laughs> same things, similar things start showing up. Um, this is very similar. So if he's in, in prison in Rome, he's writing a, a couple letters to a couple different churches. You're going to see similar language used. Uh, both letters also were delivered by Tychicus. So he's in prison. He writes his letters, gives them to a uh, someone to deliver them to the churches, not only bringing a uh, this letter to the church, but kind of would give a, a report uh, on Paul at the same time. And he's, he'll, he'll say that, you know, Tychicus is, you receive him well, and he will give you a report of how I'm doing. Okay, quickly moving on. <clears throat> Who are the recipients? Well, saints who are in Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we kind of have all our information out of verse one there as to the author and recipients. Ephesus was a, a port city uh, in what is today modern day Turkey. So just think of, I wanted this map up here for a reason. I'm going to use it. But it's, it's, it's good for us just to uh, envision 
how just the spread of the gospel in the known world at the time. Yeah, everything starts off here in Jerusalem. And it's really through the persecution in the church that the gospel begins to spread. Paul and Barnabas kind of land in Antioch. That's their home base. This is their home church, their sending church, is the church in Antioch. Paul, uh, usually kind of a roundabout way, coming through here, back to Ephesus. On his second missionary journey, he briefly visits Ephesus. On his third missionary journey, though, he, he goes to Ephesus and has an extended period of time with this church, upwards of three, three years uh, serving the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> Ephesus was um, the, uh, at certain points in history, the capital of uh, this area of Asia Minor. It is known, though, for being home to one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple to Artemis or uh, Diana, but uh, we would understand it as, as Artemis. There's, if you do a, a Google search uh, for Artemis or Diana, you probably, the first thing that comes up is probably the, uh, the woman with the bow. Um, I, I think she might have like a, a fawn or something with her. Artemis uh, is kind of very different. Artemis is a, like a, a goddess of fertility. Um, it's just kind of a very different statue. Um, it's an interesting one with kind of all surrounded by all these animals. Uh, she has, she's covered with breasts, uh, kind of very different than that Greek picture of Diana. Um, again, kind of this picture of fertility and nourishing the world. Um, but this, this is Artemis. The, the temple, uh, like I said, is one of the seven wonders of the world. The, the Greek poet Antipater, uh, he compiled the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world in AD 140. This is what he said of the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It says, I have seen the wall of lofty Babylon, which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the Hanging Gardens and the Colossus of Rhodes and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Masolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. This was a... Uh, by all estimations, it was about four times larger than the Parthenon. Uh, so this was this was no small thing, as we're about to see in a minute. Because some of the reaction that Paul received in Ephesus, this the temple worship, the, the worship of Artemis was a huge deal in Ephesus, with this grand uh, grand temple for um, this goddess. So looking at Acts 19, just to give us a little bit of flavor, you really don't have time to read all of, uh, a lot of this. I'm going to try to read, read through some of it quickly. So Paul is in Ephesus. This is now after these events, 
uh, Acts 19.21. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there, was, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is kind of a, a name for the church at the time. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And then, again, I can't um, go on and on, but there's this huge riot. And it's interesting, there's a, there's a certain point that the, the crowds chant, I think it's the great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. This huge riots unfolding. And it was interesting as Paul's just kind of on the sidelines the whole time, just kind of watching this thing. But there's this huge riot. And for two hours straight, great is Artemis, the temple in Ephesus. They're going on and on. And in Rome, there's this underlying uh, fear. Like if we are known as rioters, Rome is not going to look on that very well. So even without kind of Paul saying much, the, the leaders kind of squash, squash this right. He's like, we, we can't allow this to happen. Uh, but th- this, is, this is the city that Paul is ministering in. in. And he says, <laughs> this is what's one of those things I think as believers, um, we were at, having a conversation in our care group a little bit about this last night. But as believers, even in the face of uh, adversity, in the, in the face of persecution, which I think we should be prepared more and more, we're going to be persecuted. I, I wouldn't be that surprised if we may see in our lifetime uh, just kind of more heavy-handed persecution. And folks, you look in other parts of the world, that's happening already. This is, this is the reality. We have a very easy uh, in, in a uh, certain sense here in the West. But this is what Paul says uh, as he wrote uh, the Corinthian church from Ephesus. He says in uh, chapter uh, 16, verses 8 and 9, uh, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We, we often wouldn't connect those two phrases. There's a wide door of, of ministry open to me. And there's many adversaries. <laughs> we, we, oftentimes we think, oh, there's too many adversaries. This isn't good. We need to go find a kind of more effective place where people are more open to hear the word uh, of the gospel. Like, but Paul says, no. There's a lot of adversaries. 
And I view it as a wide opportunity for effective ministry. Then in Acts, going back to Acts, Acts 20. Verse 17, uh, this, of all our passages, this is an important one to read because it's Paul, Paul sends for the elders of Ephesus to come to him. And he has this conversation. Uh, he says in verse 18, and when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my, this is key, listen to this, this is going to help bring us home. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Again, remember, these are the elders from the church of Ephesus. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Now, these, these letters uh, that were sent to the churches, that a church would receive it, oftentimes they would make a copy, and then they would send it on. That's kind of the, the point of these letters is, hey, this is, this is the word of God from his apostles. It's important for us to send it on to the other churches. So they make a copy and send it on. And as we study this over the next, uh, over the, through the, throughout the summer, it's important for us to realize that even though we all hold a copy in our hands, it's digitized on our telephones, we have such easy access to it, that, is, that came from 
that process of copying these letters and sending them to the churches, and now we hold it in our hands. This is a, a letter to the church in Ephesus, but it holds such importance to us as a church now. And as we close up, I want to show you a little bit of that. Um, I'm not going to have time to kind of give an overview of the book. Um, Jeremy, you're teaching next week. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll send you this little bit. And sure. Just you know, launch off into, into uh, the first handful of verses from there. Okay. Uh, I would say some key phrases that as you read through Ephesians, is the stand out. In him, with him, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. These are, these are important things that as uh, Paul is writing, this idea of union with Christ, union in the, in the church is, unity in the church is because we are in Christ. Uh, as I've heard various uh, ministers say, and I have said, more than any other descriptor or name that, the, that Christians are called in Scripture is those words, in Christ. We are those who are in Christ. But consider this timeline as we close. So Paul first visited Ephesus, again, carrying from Jerusalem, Antioch, into Asia Minor, eventually over into Rome. But he, he carried this message uh, to Ephesus he first visited them in the late 80s, 40s. Then on his, second, on his uh, third missionary journey, he stayed with him for about three years. That would have been the early to mid-80s, 50s. He wrote Ephesians then in 60 to 62. In, uh, let's see, Timothy, if you uh, aren't familiar with the uh, with Timothy. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus, kind of during some of these interim years. Um, and Paul, Paul wrote uh, 2 Timothy uh, likely after his release from prison in Rome, and he was put, and Paul was put to death sometime around AD 67. Then in the 90s, if we take a bit of a later date uh, for uh, the, the book of Revelation. There's another, there's another letter written to Ephesus. I don't want to read that short letter. It's a letter directly from Jesus Christ to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Revelation 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen repent do the works you did at first. If not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the words of, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
at that point, if you take that later date of the writing of Revelation, the church in Ephesus is only 40 to 50 years old. Wow. How old is CBC? 65. 65-ish, right? Wow. This is a, a relatively young church. And there, there's some who would argue that Paul is writing his letter to the church in Ephesians kind of just because, that it's a really healthy church and he's just writing this letter to them. I side more with the uh, commentators who say, I don't think that's quite right. I think Paul's understanding, kind of in what, very much what he said to the elders when he gathered them to himself, like, I know that not long after I leave, wolves are going to come in. And even though the church in Ephesus was relatively healthy, there were some fissures starting to, to happen. And I think especially around this theme of unity that Paul is speaking so heavily in and, and people getting wrapped up into their culture and not being distinct from the culture. And that's what Paul goes into saying, no, this is, this is who you are in Christ. This is how you are to live. If you are a thief, no longer steal. No longer speak lies, but speak the truth. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. He goes through this whole, the, the, the last few chapters describing what the life in Christ looks like. So it's, I think, important for us to think through this timeline as we study through Ephesians to consider that they get a pretty serious letter some 40 to 50 years after they first are founded by Christ himself with some stern warnings about what, what is happening. And we, we ought to be very mindful um, ourselves that it is very easy for us uh, to lose our first love. It's very easy, uh, I think, for us to maybe one of the things we, we uh, can uh, find ourselves fighting against a lot, is, a lot is just turning God, turning the word of God into an, an intellectual exercise rather than opening the pages of scripture to say, this is how I know my savior. This is how I know my God. This, this is me getting to o- open his letter to me and say, this reveals the one that I love. Uh, this is the example of uh, husbands and wives. We, to, to truly know our spouse and to love them, we have to spend time with them. We can't imagine, we, we can't pretend that living separate lives is somehow going to enrich our, our love for one another. Like, I don't, I don't know you at all, but I love you. No, we... There's a reason why the, even in the beginning chapters of, uh, and, and throughout like Genesis, the Hebrew word yada, to know, Adam knew his wife. There's an intimacy there in that knowledge, but there's also a, a knowledge that is brought into all these things. We, we need to know our first love and, and be convinced that he knows us, that he has redeemed us, uh, that what we uh, do from here on out is because of that sweet redemption uh, that Christ has purchased for us. Um, I'm excited about Ephesians. Mm-hmm. It's 
it, it was a lot for me to do an introduction and not get into Ephesians itself. <laughs> I, I've been reading through Ephesians, and it's just, it is such a sweet letter. Uh, and I, I think so vital and important uh, for us, uh, even today, uh, to soak in the promises, um, to to see, as Owen puts it, all to be acquainted even more with all the privileges that are ours uh, in Christ. I think it'll be a, a <coughs> sweet and uh, healthy study for us. Any questions? We're just a, a minute past ten. Not too bad for me. <laughs> and I had to cut some notes out. <laughs> I have a question. Um, so when, and this is just like general question, but yep. in Revelation, the notes or the letters that are being written to the churches, is that Jesus writing them after he's risen from the cross? Like, in, and how many days or how long did he live after he, like, um, you know, raised from the dead. Yeah, so what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's 40 days mm-hmm. that he walked among, uh, and some 500 plus people saw that the, our risen Savior mm-hmm. before he ascended. Uh, the, as to these letters, it's, in a sense, this is, so this is John, long, long after Christ has ascended. This is John receiving these from Christ to then deliver to the churches. Uh, so that's kind of the revelation uh, aspect of it. All good? Clear as mud? <laughs> you have a question, Larry? I'm trying to think how to ask it. In anticipation of questions I'll receive, on the section that I need to talk on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Culture at the mm-hmm. time. Some people might say that some of the things that are presented in Ephesus are not culturally relevant today. Yeah, I think I know your answer. But I just want everybody to hear it so that I don't have to explain it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're gonna, yeah. So in in one minute, since the hard cutoff is ten oh five, you want me to talk about wives submitting to their husbands? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> they, I, I will give some general principles, and then you're gonna you're gonna get to set I, it up. I want my question. Answered. Not yeah. That you just made up. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is important for us first to as we do read scripture to understand the, the culture that it is written to. Mm-hmm. But we also do need to realize the um, the extension that God's word has to his church through the ages. And uh, kind of the main passage that I think of that I hear people argue mostly culture about is the passage about length of hair, head coverings, that sort of thing. Um, and I think there's a fair argument for uh, some of the pictures there of uh, the culture at the time and why uh, 
this symbol of authority uh, needed to be in, uh, in Corinth. When we get into speaking about wives submitting to their husbands. You're assuming I'm talking about that. I, I think I'm assuming correctly because I was very proud of you when you selected that passage. <laughs> when, when, there were, when there were others to be selected. I was thinking that will be the last one that someone picks, which probably means I'm going to be the one to get to get it, teach it. Uh, and I was very... You're doing a fine job. Just continue. Yeah. One, one, <laughs> one thing I will say I love about Larry is when Larry goes to pick a passage, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Larry will pick, will pick the passage that he has the most questions about mm-hmm. because he, his, his attitude is, I need to know more about that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to select that passage to put my time and effort into studying that and then hopefully have the conviction to go around and teach it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of those areas. What we, what's interesting about that one compared to the head covering passage is we see it repeated in various passages in the New Testament from various churches in different cultures. And we oftentimes approach a passage like that Wives, submit to your husbands. First off, it's very important that we follow up as to the Lord. Everything, as again, as you read through Ephesians, if y'all need to go get kids, feel free. Everything in those, that, that section about uh, wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and, and masters, Paul is constantly telling them, don't, do, don't submit, don't obey, don't love just simply because it's the right thing to do, but because ultimately you are serving Christ. Ultimately, these wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Love, husbands, love your wives as, as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, servants, even those evil masters, submit to them. Because in the end, you're not, not submitting to a man. You're submitting to your Lord. Do your work as unto the Lord. These beautiful things. And I think when we take our Western idea and the harshness of the word submit, and we lay that over the text, we actually are doing more cultural uh, damage to the text than we are uh, in understanding uh, it as Paul was writing it. And there, there is a true beauty in, um, in submission, which, uh, if, we're, if we don't remember even the context, right before he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, he says this, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Guys, the, the life of a believer is dying to self and submitting to one another. It's me saying, I see the need that Jordan has, and I'm willing to die to myself and submit, put myself down to submit to Jordan and help build him up to encourage him in the faith. That's that's really the life of the believer. It's not a life of fierce independence and saying, I am my own man and I live for Jeremy and I'm going to kind of entrench myself in my own independence. 
That's the very thing that Paul, as we're going to study in Ephesians, is tearing down. Independent? Whoa, we're not independent. We are so closely united in Christ that we are like a body. And we have a care for even the lesser parts of our body. And we're going to submit to one another of love and reference for Christ. And I think that's the picture that we should come to that rather than laying our own cultural uh, baggage on words like submit. is seeing more the scriptural baggage, the, the good, uh, what is good, and seeing the light of, of uh, Christ and his love for the church, God and his love for Christ and the church, uh, kind of overlaying it with that. I don't know if I helped at all. July... 16th, we don't even need to come. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even need to come. <laughs> that's what you So you're going to have to sweat a while. I'm not going to sweat as much. 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 And we'll secretly tell all the men to go to Starbucks and all the wives to come here. It's just going to be you against all the wives. But I think that's the, you know, we, we, to be serious and bring it back to kind of what I was saying, I think we can so fear that those instructions that we kind of dance around it rather than embracing it for what it is. And it's, it's not, um, and kind of making excuses for it. And again, I think that's just bringing our own culture. It's really what we're doing, bringing our own culture and overlaying it. So, but let, let me pray and we can get going down for the service. Father, uh, I uh, praise you for your word, praise you for the church and for Christ. Pray that you just strengthen us as we move on from here into the main service. Help us to enjoy uh, and to uh, glorify you uh, through the preaching of your word, uh, the songs that we sing, uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper and prayer. Father, just strengthen us through these things. Help us to lean on you. Help us to remember as we go about the study uh, of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, how quickly uh, serious issues did come up in this church. Help us not to think that we are above that. So help us, Father, to be people of the book, people of your word, uh, not for an intellectual exercise, but to know you, to know the love that is ours in Christ, uh, to know the union, union that we have with him, the unity that we have with believers, and to strengthen us through that. Help us in the study. Help all the individual teachers as they uh, diligently study the passages that have been set before them. Uh, help us not to be uh, clever uh, or uh, trying or looking for things that are new, uh, but just enjoying uh, the depths and riches of your word, um, what you have revealed to us in it. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.